I am delighted to be here. I've just been the, the last two months been teaching face to face again, and you know there's something quite poignant after everything that people have been through over the last two and a half years to be able to gather again and yeah feel the support and the warmth of being together with like-minded people. So I'm delighted to see you. So many of you I know so well. And it's been years, and it's a joy to be here. So I put on the board this word dukkha that many of you will be familiar with. It's a Pali word. It's often, I think, quite badly translated as suffering. And the reason I think it's a very poor translation is that, first of all, it's not accurate. It's not an accurate translation. Um, but also, we all know in our lives that we can have periods of quite intense suffering and then those events may end and turn into something else. When if somebody asked us, are you suffering right now? You'd say, no, I'm not suffering right now. You know, there's happiness in my life, um, there's joyfulness in my life, there's calmness in my life. So it really doesn't serve as a good translation. Sometimes it's translated as unsatisfactoriness. In the Pali, the word dukkha translates much more in a sort of image of a square axle fitting into the round axle holes on a cart so that when the cart moves, it bumps along. Sometimes it translates as a, a messy space that we live in a messy space. I choose at the moment to translate this as vulnerability for a number of reasons that I will explain. I think the last two and a half years has taught us a lot about vulnerability. It's kind of delu uh, demolished many of our delusions about being in control or being exempt from dukkha, or somehow having a, a you know a get out of jail free card if we just strategize our lives well enough. We have learned, <coughs> I think, a great deal about vulnerability. So, what are we vulnerable to as human beings? The first area of vulnerability or dukkha that the Buddha speaks about is the pain of pain. We age, we get ill, we get frail, we die. This is the pain of pain that all of us are vulnerable to. We know this, and sometimes we, we know it intellectually, but I think what the Buddha is talking about is, what would your life look like if you knew this in your bones? What kind of choices would you make? What would it mean to, to live in the light of that understanding of the pain of pain? I think for, if we did that, many of us, are, our choices would, would alter. Our choices would alter. I think in the last two and a half years, I don't know how it's been for you, but when many of the sort of... Um, much of the frivolousness in our life has been stripped away 
and much of the camouflage in our life has been stripped away. It's given rise to some reflections about what do I really value? You know, how do I really want to live my life? What do I really want to dedicate myself to? What does it mean to live in the light of that understanding of our vulnerability to the pain of pain? This is a very human story that, you know, millions of people have lived with over the last period of time. As human beings, we are vulnerable to the reality, the living experience of change and impermanence. I think, you know, over the last period of time, many people have, re for some people, of course, lockdown has been tremendous, you know. If you're a hermit, it's just, just good stuff, you know. Um, but for many people have been living in, really in a landscape of loss, you know where many things that they, they loved and cherished were suddenly changed. Their worlds were turned upside down, you know. Um, our sense of order was turned upside down. And we get something about impermanence. We get something about what happens within us when we rely upon things staying the same, when we rely upon things not changing. As human beings, we're vulnerable to the instability of conditions. I think in, in the more ideal circumstances in our lives, we can almost foster the illusion that somehow we are really the pilot in the cockpit, you know, and we're able to control the world of conditions. We're able to rearrange the world of conditions so that we have the maximum amount of pleasure, pleasant conditions and the minimal amount of unpleasant conditions. What do we do in the face of that vulnerability of knowing that we're actually not in control of conditions? That all of our efforts and strategies to, to fix and alter and rearrange the conditions of our lives are, sometimes they work, but only for limited periods of time. As human beings, I, I add in something that the Buddha doesn't actually speak about, but he, he speaks about our vulnerability to being imprisoned by views of self. And how that's kind of woven into our, hardwired into our psyches almost. And how much it's encouraged in our culture. You know, build a self. You know, build the best self you can and hold on to it dearly. And sadly, one of the, I think, outcomes of that for many people is that in the light of those ideals of perfection and who we should be, that there's a vulnerability to beliefs in insufficiency, that I'm not good enough, I don't have enough. So when you look at the early teachings and the Buddha speaks about, you know, what do we do with dukkha? You know, Nagarjuna put it, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? You know, what do we do with dukkha? Well, there's some, the Buddha plotted some, you know, or identified some very familiar reactive mechanisms. 
Sometimes we get angry. You know, who can we blame? You know, whose fault it is, is it that I'm in pain? You know, who, who can I lay the, the blame upon or the judgment upon? He said, sometimes in the face of vulnerability, we get busy. You know, we just get busy. We, we get busy in trying to find solutions and trying to fix things and trying to make things different than they are. I don't know how it was for, for you, where you live, but where I live uh, in Devon, when our first lockdown came, boy, did people ever get busy. You know, there was so much DIY going on, you know, that you could hardly sleep for the sound of hammers, you know. It's like, I can't bear this. I'm going to get busy. I'm going to build something, you know. I'm going to reorganize something. We get busy. You know? Sometimes we fall into self-blame. If there's vulnerability, I must have done something wrong. I must not have tried hard enough. I must not be good enough. Sometimes we fall into despair, you know, that sort of resignation that, oh, you know, life is just so painful, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, I'm helpless, uh, I'm inept. And the Buddha said all of these are going to compound the amount of distress that you experience in your life. He said if you want to get locked into and imprisoned by repetitive cycles of distress, just go down one of these avenues. And he says there are other pathways we can follow. There's other pathways that we can follow. Which is why I see dukkha or vulnerability as a crossroads. It's a crossroads where we might, if there's sufficient mindfulness in place, not follow the familiar patterns of reactivity. If there's familiar, if there's sufficient mindfulness in place, we might see that our, our meetings, our encounters with dukkha are actually moments of choice and possibility. In my experience in teaching some, some people, a very small minority of people begin this pathway because they've glimpsed joyfulness or stillness um, and want to deepen that. From, in my experience in teaching and in my own personal experience, most people begin this pathway because they've actually looked dukkha in the eye, looked vulnerability in the eye and asked themselves, what else can I do? What else can I do? So, this crossroads, we can go in two directions. And as in all good Buddhist teaching, I'm going to give you the bad news first. So if you want to come to the good news, you have to come back this afternoon. Our first response to dukkha is reactivity. Now, the most visible expression of that reactivity is what is known as the five hindrances. I've listed some of the reactions to vulnerability, but I think in, in sort of more traditional Buddhist teaching, our first reactions to dukkha gets manifested in what is called the five hindrances. And this is a personal story, and this is a universal story.
And this is not about what happens to us on a meditation cushion. This is what, these are patterns of reactivity that we encounter again and again and again in our lives. In the, you probably come across the word samsara, which means uh, it's, it's the opposite of nibbana. In a, it's, it's the world of, of, of struggle and reactivity. And the Tibetan translation of samsara is to walk in circles. To walk in circles. To walk in circles of reactivity. And have you ever found yourself asking at some point, saying, you know, how did I end up here? Often followed by the word again. You know, how did I end up here again? So anxious or so obsessive or so angry or so uh, ruminating. How did I end up here again? And that's often accompanied by a, a certain sense of bewilderment. And when I think of the Buddhist, the Buddha, how the Buddha taught, often think of the Buddha as being a kind of map maker. That he, he, he traced maps in human consciousness, cognitive processes that we can all trace in our own experience and that reveal to us very much how we got here. We know how we ended up here. And this takes some of the bewilderment out of life. So let's think about these patterns of the hindrances. The first of these, when we meet, think of these as being our first lines of reactivity and our first lines of defense against vulnerability. The first of these is, is the craving for sensual pleasure. Have you ever found yourself in meeting dukkha that you kind of just want things to be different? You want a better moment? You want, to, you want a better experience? You want to feel better? You want more pleasant sensation? The craving for sensual pleasure. And I'd just like you to consider how much this one governs our lives. Not just in moments of extreme distress, a moment of boredom, you know, a moment of a little discontent. How quickly we're, you know, reaching for our screen or opening the fridge or turning on the television, you know. What can I get that's going to actually make this different than it is, this experience different than it is? It, it's quite fascinating to see how much we, we see craving as being a way to solve dukkha and vulnerability. Whereas obviously in, in, in the Buddhist teaching of understanding, craving actually generates more and more distress and struggle. But that is a hard one for us to get. I'm going to go through these quite quickly and then I want to go into them in more depth. The second of these factors that are called veiling factors, and the, the fact that they distort our capacity to see things the way that they actually are. So the second of these is aversion. Now that's a big spectrum reaction. Impatience, judgment, jealousy, uh, anxiety is in here. Um, frustration, 
blame, shame, guilt, all of this is under the umbrella of aversion. You know, when we're faced with what we find it hard to accept, we feel that, that wall go up, you know, of I just don't want this. I just don't want this to be happening. And how much energy goes into trying to get rid of, hmm? trying to get rid of what is being experienced. Uh, the third of these veiling factors is, is often translated as sloth and torpor, but I think it's, it's, far, more, it's far more nuanced than that. Do you ever have the experience where you feel that you're, you're looking at life a little bit through a veil? It feels distant. It feels almost uh, without affect. Um, you feel somewhat disconnected. I mean, there's a, also more extremes of that, you know, where there's a lot of dullness or sleepiness or it's a way that we check out. It's a way that we create distance. It's a way that we somehow dissociate from what is going on. And, you know, that's been a huge thing. Um, you know, the Buddha speaks of these veiling factors as being the generators of mental illness. In prisons at the moment, they're finding it very difficult to get encouraged prisoners to come out of their cells. Because having been locked up for two and a half years, mostly in lockdown, watching TV endlessly, you know, just lost in their own um, thoughts endlessly, that the motivation to actually come out seems to have disappeared. This, this particular veiling factor, I have to say something in favor of it. If for children who live in traumatic environments, dissociation has often been a survival mechanism. I do find that when people have been through like really a sudden tragic loss or a physical illness or surgery, that it's often followed by quite a period of dullness and dissociation. And again, I think in these, these situations, it's actually providing something of a healing space. Now, the fourth of these factors is restlessness and worry. Um, the busyness the busyness, the, the, the worry, the rehearsing, the strategizing, the over-planning, the, um, you know, uh, the, the difficulty in being still, the difficulty in being still, the way that we can find our ways to find ourselves just kind of roving around our houses, you know, just looking for something to do, you know, looking for something to do, the, the discomfort we feel in just being with what is happening for us. And the last of these veiling factors is doubt. You know, nothing can change. I'm going to be here forever. I don't have the ability or the capacity to make uh, good choices. You know, I'm not a good enough person to make good choices. I don't deserve, I don't merit something different than what is going on. Now, I've, I've done a, a lot of teaching through the pandemic, the, the great Zoom rooms. And I'm so, I've become so aware of how many people are really struggling with these particular states of mind and states of reaction. That feeling of helplessness, and then this is what the mind does. 
This is the only only choice. It doesn't feel like a choice, you know. It just feels like ending up there.、Um, I also notice now in teaching retreats. I've just taught two retreats since we were allowed to do so, and teaching a lot of very experienced students and people reporting. It it reminds me of teaching in Israel during in a war zone. You know how much people are reporting, kind of extreme, extreme levels of these veiling factors, and thinking, why am I so dull? You know, why is there so much pain in my body? You know, why do I keep falling asleep? I've been practicing for thirty years. You know, I don't do this, and you know, I I I'm very acutely aware of you know how much people have absorbed and are carrying. Many people from what we've been through in the last two and a half years. Now, I want to spend. I want to unpack this a little bit more, but I want to just give you a little bit of an overview. That these five hindrances in the Buddhist tradition are said to be the five visible manifestations of greed and hatred and delusion, and that greed and hatred and delusion. Are said to be the three visible manifestations of avidya, or ignorance, or confusion. So, by embracing or by being willing to investigate these distortions, I think in our own experience, it's almost like we're backtracking through the kind of la- the the layers of dis- of what our distress causing. In our lives, does that make sense to you? Because this is what we can see. You know, if you look in yourself, you and say, "Well, where does the ignorance live?" You know, where does the ignorance live?、Uh, you know, you, you kind of look. You say, "Well, I'm not sure." You know, I don't really seem to be able to track it. If you ask yourself, you know, where does the greed, hatred, delusion live? Now, that might be a little bit more accessible. But if you ask yourself, Where and how do I experience these five states? That's very accessible. That's very accessible. So moving into these patterns of reactivity is one of the options, one of the pathways available to us when we are faced with dukkha. And we can be sure that if we take that pathway. We're going to feel very stuck. We're going to feel very imprisoned. We're going to feel very repetitive. Some of you are probably familiar with the quote from Viktor Frankl, where he says, "Between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space lies our power to choose, and in our power to choose." Lies our growth and our freedom. So, of course, what we are doing with mindfulness is we're cultivating that space where we have the power to choose what pathway we're going to walk down in any moment of experience. So, just to reverse to, to actually see this crossroads image. What I've just been talking about is one of the pathways that we can go down, and the Buddha says 
at this moment of meeting vulnerability, at this moment of encountering dukkha, there is another pathway that we can go down. We can cultivate that space primarily through mindfulness, primarily through awareness, slowing down processes, slowing down inner processes so that we feel there is choice. When there is choice, there's a possibility of intention. When there's a possibility of intention, there's a possibility of cultivation. Cultivating all that heals, all that liberates, all that is lovely, all that is freeing. And this begins at exactly the same point at our awareness of dukkha. So we cultivate sati, mindfulness, but we become very aware that sati or mindfulness is never a standalone quality in Buddhist teaching. That sati or mindfulness is always part of an extended healthy, functional family. It's not an end in itself, it's an embarkation point. So we cultivate sati, we cultivate mindfulness, and we don't, by the way, have to look for dukkha. We don't actually have to look for those moments of vulnerability. It's probably lots present in this room right now. It's not as if, well, I'm going to wait, you know, until that moment comes. You know, think about what you're experiencing right now, your mood, the state of your body, you know, your families, you know, the state of our world. We don't have to look for dukkha. We don't have to look for vulnerability. And we cultivate awareness, allowing us to step out of that field of reactivity and to not walk in circles any longer to not walk in circles any longer. We cultivate sati as a choice and then we cultivate the extended family of sati. And the extended family of, of, of mindfulness, there are two primary extended families. One of them is the Brahma-viharas, the kindness, the compassion, the joyfulness, the equanimity. And the other is what are called the bojangas, or the factors of awakening. Again, mindfulness, investigation, courage, joy, tranquility, collectedness, and equanimity. So I wanted to just kind of lay out the landscape of what I want to cover today before I start unpacking some of this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.